Well, hello and welcome to the latest Lit Bits podcast. My name is Adam Smythe and I'm joined as ever by my podcast pal, James Kidd, and also this evening um, by Paul Myersco from the London Review of Books. And what we're going to talk about this evening is literature and pop music, literature and popular music, as the High Court judge would say. And I wanted to kick things off by reading a little excerpt, um, unprepared for my um, fellow podsters, and just seeing what they, seeing whether they recognise it, seeing if it rings any bells. So here we go. I threw a wish in the well. Don't ask me. I'll never tell. I looked to you as it fell, and now you're in my way. Your stare was holding, ripped jeans, skin was showing. Hot night, James. Wind was blowing, where you think you're going, baby. Either of you have any bets where that comes from? I was going to say Goethe, but... Well, I thought Gertrude Stein, but... Wishing well. It's... Mm. Paul, ring a bell? I'm drawing a blank. Drawing a blank, well, that's to your credit. It's... I don't even know if I'm saying this name correctly. It's the current number one in the UK top 40. Carly Rae Jepsen, Call Me Maybe, Call Me Maybe, and she was apparently third in the Canadian pop idol. Um, Gosh, it makes you wonder who came second and then first. Yeah, yeah. That well, must be pretty extraordinary. Uh, number four in the top 40 at the moment is Usher's Climax. Um, <laughs> but uh, perhaps it introduces the uh, question of whether, I mean, they sound quite bad when we read them out loud without any music, hot night, wind was blowing, where you think you're going, baby. Maybe it raises the question of whether we can, or whether anyone has treated pop lyrics seriously um, or carefully, um, and whether they repay that kind of... Um, thought and consideration i suppose there's your obviously your alter ego um paul morley for 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 those on listening to us obviously <laughs> doesn't really help but um i don't know how helpful he is sometimes he wrote a whole book about one Kylie minogue song really I which just which can't song? get you out of my head ah, good song no the lyrics you just read out are relatively sophisticated <laughs> to me i mean there are some great songs that one could think of which yeah. would have worse lyrics than that which is going to point to a problem that we're going to come to very soon i would imagine if we're going to talk about the relationship between music and lyrics yeah but the lyrics to kylie's song which morley spends a whole book how does he get a book i mean what does he do does he give how does he do you know well morley is never only writing about the music or about the lyrics he's also writing about in some sense trying to get a grasp on a moment that would have produced right uh, a song like that but right. also a grasp on his own psychical state at the time of writing and at the time he was listening to it at the time he was being obsessed by it it becomes a book about his own obsession uh, do, do we, does anyone know if Kylie Minogue read the book? Okay. I'm sure she read it I'm sure she still reads it because the other bedside. the <laughs> other example she had it read to her by her official reader yeah because the other example that springs to mind I suppose is Rick, Christopher Ricks mm. um, on Bob Dylan and 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 there was supposedly the two met, didn't they? Suppose I think supposedly backstage, and, and because Bob Dylan um, is famously uh, unreceptive and even snooty about critics taking his lyrics terribly seriously, so I think there was a slightly embarrassed kind of bumbling encounter between the two of them. And Ricks um, asked Dylan what he was reading, and Dylan said Richard the Third, which can't be true. <laughs> I'm pretty sure no one is ever reading Richard the Third at that moment. Yeah. But um, I don't know. It's, it's, was that? I mean, Ricks took on Milton, uh, took, not Milton, took on Dylan, and, and sort of celebrated him, um, and got into a lot of controversy as a result. And people were quite out to get him. But he's was it always, a successful endeavour? Did he make a good case? Do you I think, think he, he's always nominating him for the Nobel Prize for Literature each year, isn't he? Um, nominating Dylan? Yeah, I think so. I, mean, I don't know whether Dylan nominates Ricks in return. But, um, <laughs> it's a strange thing. I mean, I've got. Christopher Ricks, this is really not very, this is all very visual. I'm, it's a big book. 
But this is Dylan's Vision of Sin, which is 500 odd pages of uh, laser sighted close reading um, on all sorts of quite extraordinary things. Um, and he do, it does raise the, the point, particularly with someone like Dylan, who constantly reorganises all of his songs, that can you ever have a stable text? And I suppose mm-hmm. it makes you think something like Shakespeare, that are we always worrying about, which is a fairly unstable text anyway, but mm. for something that's going to be performed, can we actually produce the sorts of close readings that maybe we would do um, for other things? But then show me a stable text, um, Wordsworth. Is he a stable text? Well, yeah, probably Henry not. James. Um, but how did, does he deal with music? How he does doesn't know, and he the gap that is not music. Well, he's quite bullish about that in the way that he probably is with most sort of you know with feminism and post-structural theory. He just sort of brushes it aside. And it seems like a quite radical thing to do, doesn't it? To have a professor of poetry reading Dylan, but Rix is uh, in some ways a quite conservative figure, and he sort of doesn't he place Dylan. He sort of detaches Dylan from the kind of political civil rights protest context and puts him in the context of sort of Dunn and Dryden. Christina Rossetti here, apparently. <laughs> I mean, I suppose the question is, why not? There are good reasons why not, aren't there? I mean, just to take the position, the position <laughs> is well rehearsed. I mean, he may be bullish about it, but just to put the case, I mean, even if we don't treat this as a category error, even if we don't think <laughs> this is like comparing opera with a painting or mm-hmm. Tuesday with a piece of string, then... Even if we take it seriously, that to the extent that popular music lyrics and poetry are formal arrangements of words, mm-hmm. and we compare them on that basis, mm-hmm. this is an asymmetrical comparison which takes poetry as the standard by which a pop lyric mm-hmm. will be judged. Mm-hmm. No one's talking about judging Keats as a musician. Mm-hmm. They're talking mm-hmm. about judging Dylan mm-hmm. as a poet, and that's to take away the music. And those things, for me, are as inseparable as the recto and verso of a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. It's really not clear <laughs> mm-hmm. that you can meaningfully do that, not least just selling Dylan short mm-hmm. as a musician if you yeah. do that. What does it mean, really, to abstract his lyrics from yeah. from the music? And in, and in Rix's case, it, it, it seems to me a tragic manoeuvre. I mean, he's, he's just been unable to resist his love of Dylan here, so he feels a need to write the book. He has to write the book. Yeah. But in order to do that, he has to sacrifice every possibility he has of actually analysing this object in a way they would want to. And he's just that because he's not a musicologist. He doesn't understand music. So he can't do that aspect of the of the project. Well, there's always a danger with the kind of brilliant... And I, I, I do admire Rick's enormously, but that there's something always hermetically sealed about his writing. And, and there is... But with with the music, it does seem to sort of want Dylan to, to play more politely than he ever does. So here's this bit of bit of very close reading about the line from It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. The highways for gamblers, better use your sense. Take what you have gathered from coincidence. Um, here's Rex. One of the best rhymes, that. For all rhymes are a coincidence, issuing in a new sense. It is a pure coincidence that sense rhymes with coincidence. And from this you gather something. Every rhyme issues a bet and is a risk, something for gamblers. And a gambler is a better for gamblers, betties. And then he goes on about, is there a possible pun on the word sense, as in dollars and cents? And at that point you do start to kind of bang your head quietly the against chair. the nearest. <laughs> I mean, he's not really, he's not making a case about pop music in general, is he? Or is he? Or is he just making a case about Dylan's particular um, capacities and particular talent and trying to bring I him I imagine he was it? making a case for Dylan's particular mm. genius, but in order to do that, he has to take away what is Dylan's particular genius, which is as a musician who is writing lyrics with music. The, another comparable example that I just noticed was, is Jarvis Cocker. And Faber have just published the 
lyrics of of Jarvis Cocker, yeah. um, mother, brother, lover, um, in, in in that material format, which Faber poetry is famous for, um, I th- without any much discussion of music, obviously with Jarvis Cocker's endorsement, and he's also become Faber editor at large with um, quote an open brief, as Pete Townsend was before him. Yes. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Oh. I imagine Jarvis with an open brief might be a sight to behold. If yeah. You, you know. <laughs> um, no, funny. If I, I was going, I, was, I, I, I reviewed it, and and there there is a problem. And one of the, I, I, it was on the word "all right," which Jarvis uses that word in the most extraordinary way because mm. it can be all right. And I, can't, I, I will spare you my Jarvis in prep, but on the page, oh, that was pretty good. It lacks something, um, and it just is all right, really. Yeah. And he. When you're re- when you're reading them, presumably you're recalling songs. Oh, how do, and what do you hear in your head when you're recalling mm. songs? Because I don't know about yeah. you, but I hear the whole song. Really, I hear it all together. And when you're talking, mm. I'm listening to common people in my head, and mm. I can't abstract the lyrics from that song. I hear that until it's synthesised, yeah. right? Yeah, from absolutely. the beginning. If I was to perform. Um, with my middle-class Wimbledon-raised accent. Um, it's Tricky by Run DMC, um, which do. just doesn't really work. Um, uh, this speech is my recital. I think it's very vital to rock a rhyme that's right on time. It's Tricky is the title. Here we go. It's Tricky to rock a rhyme, to rock a rhyme that's right on time. It's Tricky, it's Tricky, 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 Tricky. Well, aren't you going to have to speak them with musicality, which yeah. performs the same problem all over again? I mean, you know, you, we would... You circulated an idea before we did this podcast about Portishead lyric from Sour Times. Do you remember the words? Mm. Um, the blank space. The blank was, space. Nobody loves me. Loves it's me true. Me. That's what you think. Nobody yeah. loves me. It's true. Not like you. Do. Not like you do with the gap. Except mm-hmm. you write down that on a piece. I'm, okay, we're going to write that down on a piece of paper. Presumably, we put "not like you do" on a separate line. Maybe there'd be an enjambment. But what takes place in the gap when you listen to that song mm-hmm. is the most plangent descent on a minor chord imaginable. <laughs> <laughs> so without that, and that must account for a vast part of yeah. the emotional force of that yeah, moment in that song. Absolutely. And, and it's, what's fascinating, I suppose, is that this same problem um, also affects different periods of literature. I mean, if we're thinking about, for example, 16th, 17th century poetry, I mean, its relationship with music was really, really close and intimate. And most lyric poems, as the title suggests, that were written by, you know, whoever it is, Wyatt, Sydney, were initially and sometimes always perform with a musical accompaniment. And Shakespeare's sonnets the same and, and that's that's fallen away entirely. And we're quite happy as a as a as a as a discipline, you know, early modern studies, Renaissance studies, to talk with almost total ignorance about that musical context. And it's an it's the amazing missing everyone's interdisciplinary now and that's great. And we all know a little bit about history and a little bit about our history. But no one really knows about Music, or very few people know about music who are literary scholars. And How much attention do you pay to the songs in Shakespeare? Because I remember from, you know, ages ago studying Shakespeare, and the songs were almost always underattended. Yeah, so they're the bit you glaze over or, yeah. or um, skim skim across. Unless well, it's very obvious, and sort of Feste the Jester is suddenly yeah. singing a really sad song. Or Ophelia's like, really I write odd. sad, ironic, <laughs> in my A-level <laughs> book. Yeah. Just to make sure. I'd... Yeah, well, you do pay attention. They're hard, they're hard, because there are lots of, Ballads, popular ballads that crop up in Shakespeare. Um, Winter's Tale has loads of them, and, and, and lots of the plays have. And, and they're odd moments because they they're they're, they're instant. They are snapshots or little glimpses of popular culture, um, and therefore you might think are accessible moments. But they're also the most culturally distant moments in that we don't really under 
we don't really understand what's going on. And, and when there are these quotes from ballads, presumably there's a whole set of connotations that's being kind of that's being kind of accessed to audiences in 1603-4, which we just don't know anymore. So they seem straightforward, trite, eminently non-readable. But in some ways, I think in their moment, they were probably packed with a lot of connotations that's very hard to very hard to claw back, I think. But it's also a different language, isn't it? I, mean, I remember ages ago there was a TV show and they had this guy who'd written a PhD thesis, maybe, about ABBA mm. and did all sorts of really rather clever things and showed why ABBA were, in fact, working on us in a, in a fascinating way and, and using musicology in the language. And he was a, obviously a trained musician, but was looking at the way that, I can't remember, was it Money, 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 did something very interesting and actually was sort of ironising a certain kind right. of... But he knew that because he was a musicologist and I would be yeah. terrified to say something similar because yeah. um, I don't know that I have the language. And as you say, uh, it's very interesting what you're saying about Ricks, who clearly doesn't have the language to appreciate um, Dylan in his entirety in a way, he said arrogantly. I'm sure Ricks would be waiting <laughs> for me outside. But. I'm trying to think of the ways in which, before we came this evening, the ways in which people really linger over and think about pop lyrics. And, and, and the way that happens sometimes or often is through this curious perhaps preoccupation with backmasking. Do you know about this? A backmask message where you play a record backwards and there's something revealed, something revealed and within it. And then the Beatles song, I'm So Tired, had Paul is a dead man, miss him, miss him, miss him, which sadly wasn't, wasn't true at that point. Um, but um, and then the, 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 my favorite example is the B-52's Detour Through Your Mind, which has a <clears throat> you play it backwards and you hear I buried my parakeet in the backyard. Oh, no, you're playing the record backwards. Watch out. You might ruin your needle, um, which is kind of funny. But but that, that there was a moment, a kind of cabalistic approach. To the Old Testament sort of migrated onto playing pop music backwards. And uh, there's a Bill Hicks joke which goes, uh, "If you play New Kids on the Block records backwards, they sound better." <laughs> uh, New Kids on the Block, where are they now? Yes. That wish to analyse the songs backwards which I mean the, the reading backwards has always been a trope associated with exposing the works of the devil I think so, yeah. so, so it's hard not to imagine that this comes out of a sort of heartland American Christian desire to see pop music as inherently evil and so attempting to find hidden insidious yeah. messages in it that's right but it's also and it's also a very it's a fundamentally different approach fundamentally different approach to responding to a text than you would find in literary critics or readings of poetry like some people read poetry for to decode a hidden message but they're kind of crazy anti-stratfordians or people you know people think judy dench wrote shakespeare or something um but you wouldn't normally be preoccupied with that sense of a hidden message there is number theory with things like the torah isn't there yeah people do read text in a slightly that's right um, but if not with hidden messages mm. there is always a search and I'm, i'm not immune to this and you know never have been to want to find more profundity in a yeah. pop song than yeah. will certainly be there if you put it down starkly on a piece of paper as poetry. You're going to find that even your favourite songs collapse in yeah. a big heap very quickly if you do that. They do, but I remember when I was first got interested in buying records and stuff when I was about 10 or 11 or 12, I always used to write out, the thing I used to do was to write out the lyrics on a piece of paper, listen over and over and over again. Sure. And, and, and I think it was the moment maybe before they started printing lyrics in, in smash hits or whatever excruciating magazine I was reading um, and that's how I got to know songs was through sort of transcribing them um, and the great thing I used to do would be to turn the volume up when it repeat till fade so I was listening to sort of you know Hazel Dean or something excruciating and I would put the volume and so when it faded out try and listen for as long as I could and try and get the very and sometimes you'd hear little jokes or people you know the door shutting or something like that. Were you satisfied with your own interpretation of the lyrics or did you need them to be right? 
No, they had to be. They had to, it was a kind of a, a sort of philological yeah. sort of work of um, editing. I had to be. I had to be absolutely right. Um, but did you ever mishear a lyric? Well, um, I think I did it so carefully that probably not. But that's the that's that's a that's a thing one does in pop music. And then there's the moment of bathos when you realise, oh, it's not. What's the one? Billy Ocean saying. Get out of my fridge! I thought he was saying, "Get into my life." Oh, that's a famous. <laughs> I can't even remember what it. Maybe that's what he was. I knew a guy who thought that "Relax" by Frankie S. Hollywood went, "Relax, don't do it when you want to suck a chew it." Wow! Better we're song. sponsoring tonight's podcast. <laughs> it was about something else. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when we read, we sit down generally and read, and that's what we do. I mean, some people do listen to music, but I can't concentrate enough to read and listen to music. But when we're when you listen to music, do you is that you're doing that? Are you or are you also darning or? Yeah, I mean, one would want to try and find some points of commonality between reading and listening to music, between pop music and literature. Yeah. I think we're going to struggle. Mm-hmm. I think they involve two really quite different modes of engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, maybe leaving aside or not leaving aside the vast majority of music listening that we do or music hearing that we do. It might not be listening. Maybe we can forge a distinction between those two things. Mm. But listening would be um, going about everyday tasks mm-hmm. at work, on an assembly line, behind a counter, mm-hmm. in shops. And while, while, watching, well, while watching adverts or trailers. Or, or at the gym. Yeah. You know, the vast amount of consumption that most people are doing of music is of that kind. So actually sitting down and listening to music, which is also something we do, yeah. might be a distinct kind of activity altogether and might involve... Yeah, a different mode of engagement, but in that first mm-hmm. mode, um, there's a sort of comforting balm to the repetition. Mm-hmm. In that, there's something about the formalization and melodization of music in that repetition, which is making those everyday procedures mm-hmm. much more bearable in some sense. <laughs> yeah. Just kind of stitching across them. Yeah. Um, reading is never quite like that. It yeah. seems to me. Um, it's still a it's sort of pleasingly odd experience, isn't it? If you go to, for example. Uh, I don't know, a classical mute, cl- a string quartet or something, and you just sit there in silence and listen for like an hour and a half. It's, I mean, we're at a particular moment in the history of music, the history of music reception, when that's that's becoming a quite an odd thing to do, isn't it? Um, whereas for you know, hundreds of years of live music, that's that's that, that's that's what you did, and it, it still seems. I mean, my mum is a great. Uh, is the uh, Whitstable Music Society driving force, and so I go to quite a lot of concerts down there, and you sit there and you listen. And uh, you sort of wonder whether you're doing it right or, or how to listen or where to look or how many times you can read the programme. Well, I was reading to what Paul was saying in as much as what happened when we're doing those uh, these other things, what's happening to the to the lyrics in that? Because I, I mean, I'm not a lyric guy. I, I quite like sort of songs, I suppose. But, but when was the last time... I can't remember the last time I sat down to really listen to the lyrics of a song. And it, it seems to me that's what gets lost or would tend to get lost in the song. Yeah. Unless you're hearing songs that are so familiar, which yeah. often you are on, say, an assembly line or in a shop, which yeah. is that you're encounting them to yourself as you're going through the mm. procedures or whatever else you're doing. And music in that sense is always a multitasking mm-hmm. medium in a way that, again, literature can't be. It demands mm-hmm. exclusive attention. But but we can also give music that kind of attention. And, and you know, those people, I suppose I'm one of them, who still sit down and listen to music. Then you're looking for really quite different things. And, do you do, I you think. Say, and there's still things which are different from literature. Yeah. You know, they're much more sensual. Oh, you might gather together too, collectively, to listen to music. You might go to a gig. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You might also be dancing. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, these are still, you know, if you're taking music seriously in its artistic aspect, those are ways you're going to be treating it. But still this possibility of sitting in an armchair and reading or sitting in an armchair and listening. And then what are you looking for? I don't know. What I'm looking for is partly nostalgia. Partly I am always going back to the good stuff in my childhood and relating to myself in those moments. But I'm also looking to be pierced all over again. You know, music invades the sense, it invades the body really, the sound impacts upon the main bones of the body in a way that a smell might or a taste might. Mm -hmm. Again, literature doesn't quite have that sensorial dimension, at least not in the same way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, music, you are looking for that teenage moment of being, of having your sensorium punctured for Mm -hmm. the first time all over again, and it's harder and harder to find. It's amazing that, yes, that, that, I mean, as, as you're saying, like a key difference is this re-listening and re-listening and re-listening. And it's, it's rare to, I can, I can think of almost no novels that I've read again and again and again. And maybe poetry you might, um, because, because of, you know, it, it's short and it, and it's, has, it has in some ways a comparable effect on you. But pop music, you listen again and again and again. And there's always, it's always interesting. The songs that stand up are not always the ones you think will stand up to it because the, I often have the experience of being quite enthusiastic about a song and listen to it you know, five, six, seven times and then suddenly it starts to crumble and goes and ceases to be interesting. And others just keep on um, giving back. I remember, what were they called? The Strokes, who I, I thought when I first listened to them, I thought, this is fantastic. And then after about seven or eight goes, I just thought, I just found them very boring. Um, um, but other stuff just goes on and on and on. And even though you know every word, every beat, every pause there's still a kind of thickness there or something that it's giving back to you, which is... And there can be some music so potent that you need to keep listening to it in order to make it normal for yourself and to sort of free yourself from its yeah. power, I think. Yeah. Um, but that's a more um, psychotic engagement with <laughs> music. But then I know I've got very close friends who would feel that way about, say, Joanna Newsom, who is a poetically very heightened yeah. musician and... and um, they yet haven't yet got to the point where they've exhausted her music. They listen to it obsessively, and yeah. I actually had to take. I mean, my my particular problem is with uh, rather tragically and obviously it's with Radiohead, and I I actually have to take them off my my Walkman. My, my Walkman. Hey. Um, <laughs> my God! Throw the tape away. Throw that. To, well, actually, there was a story where C ninety. I remember this being on a bus with my uh, Walkman about two years ago and it, it didn't even have auto rewind so I had to take the tape out and turn it over and in the gap before the music began playing the very nice um, little girl sitting behind me uh, said very loudly to her mother um, is that man very poor because he doesn't have an iPod <laughs> and I turned around and said yeah I am poor um, in so many ways there is a problem which is what new music should I be listening to right now well, it's very hard to find I find it very hard to find new music but partly that's because all the kind of technologies and media through which we get music seem to be set up for nostalgia and going back. So you go on Spotify and it's, see, well, at least the way I respond to Spotify is to kind of track down songs that I know. And, and, and how, do, how does one find a new song on Spotify except by, you know, chance? Um, and obviously there's, there's music journalism and we can maybe get onto that as a, as, a, as a direct kind of collision between music and literature. But it's... Um, I find it hard, I, don't, I mean, perhaps through the radio one could find new stuff, but I find it hard um, to track down new stuff that's interesting. And the new stuff I've been listening to is not new stuff at all. It's, it's old stuff that I didn't know about before and, and yeah. that I feel I should or I want to find out about. Well, only the Radiohead thing was, was one of the rare examples of a band. I didn't like them very much, and, um, but I was reading their lyrics one day and it's, there's a song called Street Spirit off, mm. off the bend. And I, th- I thought it was, a, it was one of the songs I could bear. And I was reading the lyrics, and the last line is, um, 
immerse your soul in love. I just thought this is because they were meant to be such a miserable bunch, and they clearly are quite miserable. But it was <laughs> such a beautiful, and in this incredibly dark song, which apparently he'd read Ben Ockrey's Famished Road. And but the thing we want from pop lyrics sometimes is is different from what we want from poetry in terms of words. In the in the pop lyrics. Um, have a relationship with cliche and the commonplace and, and very familiar terms that is quite um, interesting. Because I suppose what pop music can often do is a, a song plays on the radio and everyone hears it and it's kind of available for everyone and we all share it. But at the same time, it feels completely personal and it feels like it's your script and it's, you know, you are understood through it and it gives you a way to talk about the world. And that's an interesting combination of being both general but also very, very... Particular. I think it was Andrew Lloyd Webber that said the greatest rhyming couplet in English literature is uh, she was just 17, mm. you know what I mean, which yeah. says everything you need to know about Andrew Lloyd Webber, I suspect. <laughs> but, um, Doesn't completely make But there is something about that. that that's right. And I suppose we use music often to fit a mood or to, in that sort of blues tradition, perhaps to try and, can one cathart? Um, I did. Let's once. hope not. Uh, but you, that we listen to music to make us feel better or feel worse in order to make ourselves feel better. I had a lecturer that used to say, if he used to ask in a, a lecture about um, Dickens, and he'd shout at the, at the, at the gathered multitudes, if, if you were dying, which Dickens book would you reach for? And it was such a startling question that everyone started crying immediately. <laughs> and he would sort of say, depended on, on, on which frame of mind he was imagining his own death, which Dickens he would read for. But he, he would reach for. But I, I, I think it's probably... I wouldn't. I can't imagine no. if I was feeling down, running to 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 my collected Beckett short plays. No. Um, to in the way that you might want to listen to. You would reach for "She Loves You." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. You would. Depending yeah. on how much time you had. Yeah. <laughs> Just seconds to go. And I can remember. I don't know if it's the same for you, but I can remember pop lyrics in a way. That sadly, I can't remember. They poetry. etch themselves sometimes almost immediately, and you can't forget them even if you wished you could. Like <laughs> teenage phone numbers you had as a teenager for girls you never called. I mean, they just stay there yeah. in your mind. I thought you were going to say teenage dirtbag baby, which I can also remember. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the archive that Adam is talking about, the way you use Spotify and you find yourself almost immediately going back for songs mm. rather than looking for what might have emerged recently. That's right. I mean, you're, you, the opportunity now is to fill out the archive of mm. one's own past and mm. to recollect, re recollect oneself, mm. one's teenage self usually. Mm. Um, but what comes along with that process is hearing songs you won't have heard for 20 years mm. and finding that you know every single note of them mm -hmm. and can sing along in the most perfect karaoke. I discovered in my uh, four weeks of research for this pod that um, there's an artist called Amber. Who's, have you heard of Amber? It's a Dutch um, dance um, singer, artist, who, who has a song called Yes, which is um, most or lots of the lyrics in the last chapter of Ulysses. Um, put to a dance beat and um, you can see it on YouTube she's performing at this sort of Miami beach party um, and it's actually quite good it actually works rather well um, but other, there must be a few instances of um, thinking of this link between novels say and songs of, 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 of songs looking to books and, 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 and putting them in music Otherwise yeah there's a, there's a sort of there's a reciprocal borrowing there isn't there and we could talk about literature borrowing from songs too that might be less rewarding I mean that's that's where I thought we were going to go at the beginning of the podcast mm -hmm. that seemed like a natural way to go except that it's very difficult mm -hmm. to find literature engaging with pop music yeah. very much we could produce any number of yeah. exceptions now I'm sure we could get 10 or 20 mm -hmm. but that's really not very many yeah. um, mm -hmm. it's quite 
rare that literature engages yeah. with pop music, but it does often to borrow a quick semiotic hit. You know, you might find Douglas Coupland calling a novel "Girlfriend in a Coma," yeah. um, something like that. But literature, I think, always imagines itself as being uh, a higher genre, and it can slum it with popular music or borrow its energies temporarily. But it really has very little to do with it. Mm-hmm. When the borrowing goes the other way around, when pop music is borrowing from literature, then I, I find it almost as embarrassing because. I find that in, that instance slightly embarrassing, however it sounds, mm-hmm. just because I feel like pop music should be better than that. It shouldn't succumb to literature's <laughs> arrogance. It should be doing its own thing. And so when the Waterboys do Yates mm-hmm. in Fisherman's Blues or when the Beatles on Magical Mystery Tour um, have uh, King Lear over the final bars of I Am the Walrus or borrow from Thomas Decker uh, yes. on Abbey Road, yes. um, well, there's a sort of very obvious stab at high cultural status there which yeah. which I think exposes them as being less cool than yeah. I want them to yeah. be yeah. EMF quoting from uh, T.S. Eliot on Schubert Dip which, which I didn't realise until years exactly. later really? They which, which sample bit of this is the way the, oh. the world ends and then it goes into some I mean the, the one example I, I, I did actually just literally as I was leaving the house I think that could stand up was Tom Waits album Alice um, and I think what it's good about it is that it's not literal. It's he's taken the spirit, the sort of slightly madcap yeah. spirit. So you have him sort of yelling about Reaper bonds, and mm. but this is a rather nice lyric. Um, every everything you can think of is true before before the. See, this is the problem. You can't. It's very hard to read it, in the, and certainly not in the way that Tom Tom Waits does. Everything you can think of is true before the ocean was blue. We were lost in a flood, run red with your blood, Nigerian skeleton crew. I have no idea what that's about. There's, a, there's also a great moment, isn't it, when he's describing some person who's in love with Alice and is ice skating her name repeatedly into the ice, so much that the ice cracks and he falls through. Recently, this gave me a chance to talk a little bit about Steve Aylett. Um James and I are both reading at the moment, I think, Steve Aylett. Um, his fictional biography of the um, pulp writer Lint, which is very, very funny. And um, towards the end, Lint collaborates um, with uh, a band called the Unofficial Smile Group and produces um, a series of songs. And I just quite like the song titles, so I'll just read, the, read them to you. Um, they don't need to amount to anything more than that. So this is from side two of the album. Um, the album is called The Energy Draining Church Bazaar. And these are the songs. DNA Interruption Charm. Mesmerised by midges, through the keyhole I saw the funeral of a duck. Would you mind not doing that? The number 19 is made of wax, and dead or not, he was wearing shades. And um, the... uh, That was a funny review of it. Oh, yes, and and the reviews to the album were largely negative, and one of them said, you may as well put an omelette on the turntable. (laughs) Which I thought was pretty funny. (laughs) We could think a little bit about music journalism as as a form and as a as a kind of writing, because we grew up reading well, certain kinds of music journalism fairly religiously, but it's not something I read that much. I mean, there's Enemy, Rolling Stone, Smash Hits, The Wire. Is it Wired? Wire? The Wire? Just called Wire. Just called Wire. Um, and, um, Paul, you're a reader of that, right? Are you? I do look at that, yeah. I, try, I tried once. I really wanted to give it a go, but it, it seemed to proceed through... So many references to other groups that I didn't know and I'd never heard of, and some of them I didn't even believe that they existed. Surely it's just very, very hard to write well about 
music. I mean, one, one could write about music and put it in its context and relate it to previous bands, and I could see how that is possible. But writing with um, kind of truth and candor and kind of astuteness about what a song is about, how it works, that, that just must be very hard. And partly it's because you write literary criticism, you're using words to talk about words, and, and you're in the same world as your object. But right, using words to talk about music, it just all just must be very hard i mean the one review i can remember is is from the nme and and it rather sort of chimes with something paul was saying earlier which was it was a review of a simply read single and i said this is the sort of mick hucknell production that you put on when you're doing the ironing uh, washing the dishes or listening to another record and i thought that was a very good review of sort of how inoffensively kind of bland yeah. he'd become and I thought that, that and it sums them up in a way yeah. but I'm rather with Paul I mean I, my my solution to to not listen to Radiohead was actually to listen to some of this rather imposing uh, new um, electronic music and there is extraordinary websites which are also double shops things like boomcat and bleep.com and they, they you can download music from them but they also have these extraordinary um, reviews which, is, as Adam was saying, with a, so I go on to things like the Aphex Twin, but they would compare the Aphex Twin to lots of other things, and half the things they were comparing the Aphex Twin, I didn't realise, were also the Aphex Twin, but under a different pseudonyms. And there's a, there's a, but there is a kind of discourse which reminds me of being a bit younger and walking into some of these sort of DJs, record shops, where you'd feel like an absolute idiot because you didn't know the A-side only white vinyl of some Dutch hip-hop remix probably amber yes. and probably and probably amber and, <laughs> but there is a kind of there is this sort of critical discourse which is quite difficult the only problem with boomcat actually is um they do think every single record that's ever been made is brilliant right downloaded immediately i think there is an attempt in that kind of journalism sometimes to to show you just how vital it is that you get hold of these mm. sounds by exploding discourse as well by talking about it in a way that you don't recognize and that you do find alienating so that you have to listen to the music to find out what sort of sound mm -hmm. might be able to be reconciled or registered mm -hmm. by this particular way of talking about it you know if you can if you if you can only talk about it by having um, recourse to this sort of language mm -hmm. then this must be a genuinely sort yeah. of modernist <laughs> piercing of the musical <laughs> continuum if we know it yeah. um, and but do that, those do that kind of kind of quite rarefied discussion do they occasionally celebrate very very mainstream do they do they occasionally whatever the contemporary they, they Paul should, young is do they, they suddenly... should they should love more than they do to find subversive moments in the mainstream and to say look at this this is extraordinary that they should come out perhaps even unknowingly from yeah. from, from a mainstream source but they tend not to do that yeah. because 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 that seems to me a very uh, interesting and kind of um difficult but useful activity yeah. to find amid, amid the kind of yeah. dross. They might do it retrospectively, historically. Yeah. They might find a moment in 1974 in the charts going on that, 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 that turns out historically to have been yeah. radical in a way that we can only perceive now. But, yeah. but they tend not to do that with uh, today's number one. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's yeah. that way, I suppose, where, where you look back and, and think Club Tropicana was... Sure. Was, was not actually that good. Was actually not <laughs> good. But people, will, you, you can place it in a context which suggests it was vaguely significant. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, it's, if you're interested in the history of taste or the history of reception, or, then, 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 yeah, or hairdos. Uh, exactly. Then, um, or, or most seriously, you know, modulations of sexuality in yeah. the 1980s. Yeah. You know, then you it. are going to take one very seriously. Right? Yeah, 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 exactly. What is Andrew originally doing now? Do we know? Enjoying himself, I like to think, just really? supremely enjoying himself. Right. Yeah. Right. I'm more point. Enjoying himself. I mean, just 
just reveling in himself. Fondness one has often for songs that you wouldn't defend necessarily as as, as important, significant, interesting, um, but still somehow um, are things you return to or, or enjoy. And I don't know if I mean my example, I suppose. What was that called? The, the sister of Daniel Bedingfield. What's she called? Natasha. Natasha had a song called These Words, which was a dreadful song about how you couldn't find the right words. And actually, it's quite literary. She talks, it's painful. She talks about trying to read Keats and Shelley and Byron and not finding the right words and then speaks from her heart, um, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I do kind of like the song. And I, it's hard to explain why, but... Um, uh, the Huey Lewis one is The, pa- the Power of Love. Power of love. extraordinary triptych of three songs all called The Power of Love that came out roughly the same time. Frankie and all Goes to the, Hollywood. Frank, and Jennifer Rush. Jennifer Rush, yes. Which I will sing later. Yeah. But um, all incredibly affecting, just because they're all called the power of love. And yeah. You can't. You just can't deny these songs. Yeah. The Fra- yeah. the Frankie O's Hollywood one. I once saw Suede thing, and it was incredibly affecting. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing so potent as cheap music. Yeah. No, but it's but that. But do you have? I mean, so is that is that an example of? Is that your Natasha Bedding? Um. No, mine. <laughs> my my embarrassing one, but but I but which I can't resist is uh, which I was trying to remember this the other night, but it was it probably would be Bon Jovi's uh, "Wanted Dead or Alive," which mm. just I can't. Is it the sort of banjoey guitar? I think it speaks to my life as a sort of person that wanders the streets, you know, with a six string on my back. It's all. It's some of it is about the London Library. That song. I think at least some of it. <laughs> Yeah, so many years ago when I, in my brief um, career teaching at a, a university before I was um, expelled, and I mean, to some extent arrested, but that's quibble, um, there was a young student who was struggling with the wasteland, um, and to pretend that I understood it, what I did was um, I asked him if he liked hip-hop, which he did, and we talked about the notion of sampling, which seemed to have at least some sort of parallel with what Elliot was doing, and it was a way in for him to... to um, to at least get some sort of grip on the on on the text, and but mm. as Paul was saying um, earlier, the the problem with the wasteland is it becomes this sort of never-ending nightmare of uh, sort of this echo chamber of once you find one illusion, do you in order to understand that illusion, do you have to what else do you need to understand mm-hmm. to understand that? Wh- where do, where do you stop? And perhaps with pop music, there isn't the same mm-hmm. historical depth, or maybe we're at a funny moment, aren't we? In terms of, I mean, I could see that would be. a a brilliant way of explaining the wasteland because the youth I'm given to understand are familiar with the kind of sampling and quotation and kind of pastiche and stuff. Um, but there's this weird twin emphasis, isn't there, in, in, in modern culture and contemporary music, which seems to be an obsession with authenticity and, you know, saying who you really are. If you watch The X Factor, there's this incredible emphasis on your life story, what you've got to say, but also a great emphasis on rehashing old songs, quoting sampling putting other voices together and kind of it's an odd it's an odd combination this this interest in authenticity with, but but sampling at the same but time with pop music it seems to be a much more dangerous thing that in a strange way that people seem to get much more upset about it that you get you know real rock stars saying oh they're just they're just nicking other bits of records and hip-hop's stupid because they're just mm. singing era, songs over an aerosmith riff or whatever it is whereas in literature it's a it's a sign of mm sophistication and um, a kind of historical depth and a knowledge of your of your craft. It does seem to be one of the areas actually where a, a certain kind of sophistication in pop music in fact seems to get rather, perhaps less so, I think less so now, 
But, you know, you think about the cut-up techniques that Burroughs is using, um, uh, or someone like Tom, Tom Phillips and creating things out of other things. Um, pop music still seems to be a bit resistant to this notion of now it's laptop music. Yeah, it's interesting. Pop music has always worked with very stringent notions of intellectual property, actually. Mm. You know, whether it be copyright coming from the studios themselves or, or musicians, as you say, are strongly invested in a, in, a, in a notion of authenticity and their own authentic productions, mm. which must be bound up in some sense with an insecurity about the very limited structure of chromatic music and the way in which you have to get quite deep into a musical sequence before they begin to distinguish themselves yeah. sometimes, the at least exactly like the beginning of a chess game. You're going to have to get six or seven moves in before you can really start to make something distinctive in your own. Yeah. Um, so hence you get quite a lot of court cases about borrowings or what they want to call stealings or plagiarisms from from yeah. from, from previous musics. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. You know, I've got this vision of an old rock star who is invested in a discourse of authenticity that is absolutely does not correspond with yeah. Um, yeah. the students that you'll be teaching now who are yeah. much more archival and random historically in their likings and dislikings when it comes yeah. to music. Well, so maybe a final question to think about is, is which we prefer, which is better? <laughs> Which which means more meaningful to us. Keats um, or Dylan. Keats or Dylan. Keats or Dylan. <laughs> um, which which um, we which do we Bio turn to more frequently, or which gives us more um, in return? And I think for me, it's, it would pro probably be um, pop music. I have to say, um, in that my feelings about it, feelings about particular songs, are more personal, intimate, and they seem to be um, speaking to me with a kind of. Um, directness that literature has you know has sometimes done but not as frequently done so for me it's pop music how about you you guys i mean i find them such different mo i mean the answer is the same because i mean the frequency with which i go back to pop music which is much greater than the frequency with which i go back to literature it's part of the problem is i find literature too immersive i find it almost too much i mean the demand that literature makes of you i suppose novels i'm talking about rather than poetry in fact is to generate an imaginative world in which you then immerse yourself and in my case immerse myself completely and sometimes troublingly I get lost in it for weeks after I've finished a good novel. Mm. I tend to fight shy of them for that reason sometimes. <laughs> I can go months at a time without reading a novel mm. for that reason. Mm. I did this recently with David Peace, got lost in David Peace's mm. horrible world for <laughs> months at a time mm. and haven't really read anything seriously since. Mm -hmm. um, pop music however and this is the extent to which I'm also suspicious of it, is a much easier pleasure, much easier access of emotion and relationship to the self, which I'm happy to dive into every day and whenever I'm negotiating public transport. <laughs> James? I think it's right. I, I think pop music is as much a, a distraction. It's be and it's, at its best, it, it can do something like great literature, but the yeah, whether it's yeah David Peace or um, I was rereading a James Elroy novel recently and it's just fantastically upsetting or um, or even see you know in, in performance I can't other than Tom Waits but was, I remember seeing John Hurt performing um, Crap's Last Tape mm, I saw and, that and it was extraordinary and he was clearly crying at, mm. but it was also something about the power of those words as well as the performance and I couldn't I couldn't think of a performance in a in a sort of in the pop arena that would that could possibly compete with it no um all right well that's the verdict in from the pod um and i think we should draw things to a close so thank you very much paul myersko for um dropping into the podular 
Arena. Thank you to James. And we're all off to that Hazel Dean concert we talked about before. Do come back soon for a warm, plump pod. Thank you.